Hello, my name's Carl. I'm from the 5pm service. And today's reading is from Ecclesiastic 3, verses 1 to 15. And I'll give you a few moments to, to find that in your Bibles. A time for everything. So Ecclesiastes 3, verses 1 to 15. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. Hello, my name's Nathan. I'm one of the ministers here at St. Matt's. Let me just say something straight from the outset in case you're wondering. I'm not wearing my pyjamas this week, but you might be, and that's great. And I hope that wherever you're joining in from, that you're warm and comfy. Not too comfy, though, because we've actually got a pretty great passage from God's Word to get stuck into together today. And in order to get ready ourselves, let's actually take a moment just to pray over this time together. Let's pray. God, you are the Lord of time. As we take these ancient words of yours and spend these next few minutes reflecting on them, give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts that are ready to receive what you have for us. To your glory and in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, without a doubt, you'd have to say that our passage today has got to be about the most famous and well-known part of Ecclesiastes. And actually, there's a pretty good chance that this little chunk of scripture here is one of the most enduring parts of the whole Bible, at least to modern Western ears. Modern Western ears familiar with American folk pop songs, perhaps. Is that too specific? Maybe. Catchy songs from the 60s aside, today's passage actually also regularly makes an appearance at both weddings and funerals which when you think about it is it's quite an achievement. 
But perhaps most significantly of all, Ecclesiastes 3 holds the pride of place in being what's probably the Bible's most direct treatment on the topic of time. Now, I don't know what first comes to your mind as as you read through the opening poem of today's chapter. Maybe it's the song. That's the one. Maybe it's a, a wedding or a funeral that you remember hearing it read at. For me, it's actually Kim Kardashian West. Bet you weren't expecting that answer. Now, if you're sitting there on your couch asking, who's Kim Kardashian West? Well, one, I don't blame you. And two, let's be honest, you're probably better off because of it. But Kim Kardashian West is the best kind of celebrity because she's really only famous for being famous. She's a reality TV star. She's married to Kanye West. And she has over 160 million followers on Instagram. For those of you that don't know Instagram, that's a lot of followers. Those are her children there. She's got four of them with Kanye. And they range in names like Saint, Chicago, Psalm, and wait for it, her eldest daughter is named North. North West. (laughs) I told you, she's famous for being famous. Now look, it's not Kim Kardashian herself that Ecclesiastes 3 brings to mind for me, but rather it's the playroom that she boasts about on her Instagram account. You see, earlier this year, in those simpler pre-COVID times, Kim actually made quite a stir when she treated her millions of Instagram followers to a tour of the playroom in her home. Now, to call it a playroom is a tad misleading. It comes across far more like a showroom. It's complete with a a musical corner with a full drum kit, a collection of violins. Uh, There's a drawer full of Duplo and Lego, but they've all been slavishly arranged according to color. There's a walk-in wardrobe for costumes. There's a grocery store with a fleet of real kid-sized trolleys and shelves upon shelves of neatly stacked plastic groceries. Most impressive, I reckon, though, was the the wall of storage shelves that were stacked floor to ceiling with every kind of craft material you could possibly imagine. Each tub was carefully arranged and labelled and catalogued. Even the crayons were organised according to their colour, it, it's, it's an insane playroom, most of all because of its immaculate organization. Like everything is just so carefully arranged. There's a place for every toy under the sun in this playroom. You know, I think that's actually what I find so striking about our passage and the way that it begins. Like it's a stunning poem, isn't it, when you look at it? For its beauty and simplicity and balance and the the order of its rhythm. And I also find it remarkable that the teacher, in just these 14 short lines, is able to capture a snapshot of life under the sun. Do you notice that? It touches on beginnings and endings, on human emotions, and on the the range of relationships and how they interact with each other, It touches on the way we work and even on our possessions. 
just like Kim and her playroom, it's as if the teacher here is offering us a tour, the chance to stroll with him through the totality of human experience. And there's a time for everything, he tells us. And he really means everything. Like even the season of global pandemic that we find ourselves in, even that rates are mentioned. Did you notice? There in verse 5, take a look, what does he say? There is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. You've got to say, it's a pretty comprehensive list. And it's at this point that I think it's helpful to remember the kind of text we're dealing with today. This isn't a narrative. It's not prophecy. It's what we call wisdom literature. Along with books like Proverbs, Job, and James, the point of wisdom books is to help shed light on living well in the world. And that's the point of this poem, I think, as the teacher turns his attention to reflect on the topic of time. Timing is everything, as they say, and so it goes with being wise. Because you see, living well involves knowing the time. The wise are those who are able to discern the time correctly and so can match the right response with the right occasion. Does that make sense? The easiest example I can think of uh, is when it comes to what we say. And there is a time to speak and a time to remain silent, the teacher tells us, just like when it comes to giving your spouse advice. Knowing what to say is the easy part, right? Knowing when to offer said advice, well, therein lies the crown of wisdom. (laughs) Ain't that the truth? Timing is everything. And living well in the world involves discerning the right season so that you can respond in the right way. I wonder... What season are you in at the moment? And how well are your words and actions actually matching the times? Just like the toys in Kim's intricately planned playroom, when it comes to living under the sun, everything has a place. Now, perhaps unsurprisingly, when Kim's playroom tour started gaining some traction online, As is often the case in our internet age, there came a pretty swift and sudden backlash from a certain quarter of people. Namely, mothers from around the world who actually knew what a real playroom looks like. Almost in retaliation, there came this flood of pictures across social media, parents who decided to share the state of their own playrooms. And each one kind of stood as a testament to the mess and to the disorder that seems to always follow little people around wherever they go. Now, I can say that. I mean, I've got three of these guys at home myself, and I can attest that is absolutely true. As the photos came streaming in, it was as if parents across the globe were defiantly declaring, get real, Kim. You know what? I think the teacher's poem comes up short in in a similar kind of way. Because sure, there might be a season for every activity in life, but how often are they neatly arranged like that? Never. They overlap, 
they clash, they exist in tension with each other, or, or sometimes they happen at the same time. You've got some seasons that, that never arrive, even though we desperately hoped that they would. You've got other seasons that never end, no matter how hard we might have prayed for them to. Things happen abruptly, without any notice or warning. Sometimes everything suddenly shuts down because of a global pandemic, and now we have to do church online and sit in front of Zoom all day. It's like, what? I mean, we all have stories of our own that prove this point, don't we? Like, I think of my good friends, Kate and Brian. They met and they married at Bible College, which is where I met them. And uh, we hung out a lot together in that season, and we still do continue to hang out from time to time. They're great guys. But after they married, they spent three long years battling infertility. I mean, that is a hard season to be in. They tried every treatment under the sun, it seemed. And as they did, they had to watch other couples who were joyfully entering a season that they so desperately wanted for themselves. But then after the three painful years of waiting, their time finally came. And quite unexpectedly as well, the very first round of IVF actually worked. God gave them a little boy. And then one morning, completely out of the blue, Kate went into premature labor. She was only at 23 weeks. Two days later, she delivered him. And then 30 minutes after that, he went to be with the Lord. A time to be born and a time to die, says the teacher. What he fails to mention is that the time between those two seasons is sometimes tragically short. You see, life under the sun is not neat and tidy, it's messy. There's a lot of other words you could use to describe it. That's probably the politest way. It's messy. And if being wise and living well requires that we know the time... How can we possibly make sense of a world that so often just seems so senseless? How do we pull that off? Well, the teacher's answer is pretty blunt. We can't. Take a look with me in your Bibles from verse 9. Actually see what the teacher has to say. Take a look. What do workers gain for their toil? There's that same cynical question that we heard him pose last week. He continues, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the the human heart. Yet, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Do you see what he's saying? There is an order There is an order to creation. There is something going on. It's not just a random, chaotic mess. And according to the teacher, God's even placed within each of us a hint, a sense, an inkling that there's something more going on here, something bigger, something on a a grander scale than the time we spend just staring at our own horizons. I don't know if you can sense that. If you don't know the God I'm talking about today, if you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Christ, I wonder, though, whether you have sensed that, that there is something more going on, something bigger. And yet, 
the teacher says, and it's a big yet. When we depend only on what is seen, on the life around us under the sun, we'll actually never be able to discern the order from the disorder. We'll never be able to wade through the mess to make sense of the senseless. It's actually a dead end. Why is that? The teacher explains it's because we lack a God-sized perspective. We cannot fathom what God is doing because our vision just doesn't reach far enough. Our eyes remain fixed on our own horizons. Do you know what I mean by that? We only really see the, the right now things. Only the stuff that's right in front of us. Only what's most relevant to me right now. That's what we see. And as important as the me right now perspective might be, and as important as that might be to God, it's truly only a pinprick-sized perspective. It's a tiny, itty-bitty pinprick in the grand scheme of the cosmos. Now, that is not to at all dismiss our perspective. But when it comes to comprehending all that God is doing in the cosmos and all that he has been doing throughout every age, the me right now perspective, it really only gets you so far, doesn't it? And in fact, it won't be very far at all, the teacher tells us. And that's the burden we bear the frustration we face living in this mess of a world, in the chaos, in the disorder, but not being able to make proper sense of it all. Sounds like a pretty dark place to be, and it is. But thankfully, the teacher doesn't leave us there. When we come to verse 12 in our passage, there's a very important pivot that we must make note of. You see, back in verse 10, the tension's been caused by what the teacher has seen, the great burden of humanity's failure to fathom. Has a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Failure to fathom. Because in merely just looking around at life under the sun, he can't make any sense of it. But then in verse 12, and then also in verse 14, the teacher's approach dramatically shifts, and he moves instead from what he sees to what he knows. Take a look with me right there on the pages of Scripture. Verse 12, how does he begin? I know. Verse 14, how does he begin? I know. It's a simple shift, but it ends up changing everything. Because you see, instead of despairing in our failure to fathom, instead of relying on what it is we see, he relies on what he knows. That's what the teacher's doing at the end here. The answer lies in holding to what we know rather than what we see. That's what the teacher does at the end here. He, he holds out two simple, profound truths that he knows about his creator, almost as if he's having to remind himself of these things. Take a look with me at verse 12. What's the first thing he knows? Take a look, verse 12. That, that there is goodness to be received in these times, as hard as it might be to find. Goodness that we can receive as a gift from a gracious God. You see, the teacher knows that his creator is generous. The second thing he knows comes in the final two verses, and it's this. 
He worships a God who is powerful and who's in control of all things, all of the past, all of the present, all of the future, and a God who is therefore worthy of our humble reverence and respect. Like That's what it means to fear him there at the end of verse 14. When we look at life under the sun, often what we see is mess and disorder and chaos. And it is those things. But it's also more than all of that as well. Much, much more. And we can say that not because of what we see, but because of what we know. Or rather because of who we know. You see, even more important than knowing the season or the time, as helpful as that can be, The key is found in knowing the Lord of time, knowing the good and sovereign creator and resting in the knowledge that nothing happens without his permission. So even though to the naked eye, these times will look to us like a chaotic mess, we can actually be confident like the teacher is that there actually is an order to it all, that there is a purpose and as hard as it can be to see, there's beauty there as well. Of course, there's no greater demonstration of the beauty and the goodness and the power of our God than that moment when the Lord of time actually stepped into time himself. Look how Romans puts it. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. If the teacher of Ecclesiastes just kind of barely begins the sketch of our God, The coming of Christ completes the portrait in all of its vibrancy of colour and glory. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we actually have the ultimate revelation of God's power and goodness. On that day, in that hour, the Lord of time, by his power, brought the reign of Satan and death to an end. On that day and in that hour out of his abounding goodness and generosity he gave of himself didn't he that we might receive from him the offer of forgiveness the chance to be accepted by him the promise of new life and just like the teacher the gospel what does it do it draws us to our knees in humble thanks to an almighty god and it invites us also to entrust ourselves to his divine plans and purposes even when we can't make sense of it all knowing and trusting that in his goodness and by his power, he's actually already begun to set all things right. As we finish up, I want to leave a final word to those who are traveling through a particularly difficult season of life right now. I came across a poem this week that I just thought I really needed to share, mainly for the way that I think it just perfectly captures the challenge of receiving the gift of time when it's very hard to discern it as a gift in the present moment. It's called the two-headed calf. It goes like this. Tomorrow, when the farm boys find this freak of nature, they will wrap his body in newspaper and carry him to the museum. But tonight, he is alive And in the north field with his mother, it's a perfect summer evening, the moon rising over the orchard, the wind in the grass, and as he stares into the sky, there are twice as many stars as usual. As I came upon this poem this week, 
my mind was immediately drawn to my friends, Kate and Brian, and I really put it down to the work of the Spirit because I began recalling something that I, I really don't remember thinking much about since it happened. I remember in the aftermath, sitting with them both and, and hearing them recount the, the events of that day at the hospital. Before Timmy died, they, they took the time to pray over him. They baptized him. They even sang to him, It is well, that great old hymn. But the thing that struck me the most was that they took photos together. And in the photos, they were smiling. I remember being shocked by that. How could you smile at a time like that? And it actually wasn't until this week, reflecting on Ecclesiastes 3, that I finally understood how it was they could do that. You see, despite the grief and the sorrow of the season, along with the tears and the anguish, they actually chose to receive the time, well, very little time that it was. They took hold of those precious moments before having to say goodbye. You see, that day at the hospital was a time for tears. And yet for those brief few moments, it was also a time to smile and be thankful. When it comes to life under the sun, there is a time for everything. Even in the toughest of seasons, there will be moments of mercy and glimpses of grace, as faint and as fleeting as they may be. Look for them. Cherish them. And as you do, never forget what you know to be true. That our God is in fact the Lord of time. That he is good. That he is sovereign over all things. And that there is a time soon coming, that eternal season on our horizon, when the tears will be dried and our wounds will be healed forevermore. Amen.